Blog Talk Radio. Good evening. My name is Trina Ramsey, and I'm here to welcome you to another insightful edition of the Revolutionary Sisters of the Diaspora. We are a group of black and brown women coming together to discuss topical issues of race, economic justice, gender equality, and everything in between. And we are coming to you live tonight on the Power Network. Tonight's discussion is extremely important, especially in light of recent events. Enfranchisement, resisting attacks on voting rights. Because we all know we wouldn't be here today if we didn't have voter suppression going on in our country. So I am very pleased to pass the mic over to Ann, who is our host for our discussion, who will introduce our very special guest this evening. Good evening, everyone. This is Ange, and thank you for being with us tonight. Uh, we are so pleased and honored to have um, not only a tremendous woman who some of you may have seen on MSNBC um, and the Roland Martin Show, but she's a dear friend of ours. Uh, her name is Nicole Austin Hillary, and she's the director and counsel of the Washington office for the Brennan Center for Justice. And uh, Nicole has just transformed the way all of us think about civil rights, human rights, voting rights most especially, um, and pretty much any type of criminal justice issue that's out there, she, boy, she is well-spoken, well-regarded, she is always asked to speak at various numerous awards, um, but she is just a down-to-earth girl from the PJs. Uh, she has interviewed, though, the notorious RBG, and for those who don't justice, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce our uh, guest for this evening and um, our friend, Ms. Nicole Austin-Hillary. Welcome, and thank, thank you so much, Ange, and thank you, Trina. It is such a pleasure and an honor to be here with you, ladies, and with your audience this evening to talk about this extremely important part of our democracy, uh, without which uh, our democracy really wouldn't exist as we know it. Uh, so I'm so pleased to be here, and I thank you so much for the invitation. You are so welcome. And it was so apropos that we're having this discussion. Um, we, you know, choose our topics month to month, and who knew last month when we chose this topic that we would be dealing with this madness that we are dealing with right now in Charlottesville, and we want to definitely send condolences out to the young woman's family who, you know, tragically lost her life in Charlottesville fighting for the rights uh, and trying to have a voice for those who have been disenfranchised for too long. And so um, we want to just really honor her, and um, she is definitely a martyr for the cause, and we will continue to um, to work in in honor of her and all of the civil rights leaders that have put their lives on the line to ensure that we have our rights. And also in recent days and today just in Barcelona um, there was someone who I think went in and, and 
uh, set off a bomb, a suicide bomb in Barcelona. I believe I read something yesterday. There was another bombing situation in Nigeria. Uh, and so what we fight for every day, the rights that we fight for in this country are so important because we know there are so many people who don't have a lot of the rights that we do have, and we have to be steadfast and ensure that we maintain the level of commitment and we maintain the rights that we have uh, that so many people uh, who came before us have worked so hard to ensure that we have today. So it's very apropos that we're talking about voting rights today, and no one better to talk about that than Ms. Nicole Austin Hillary. So, Nicole, I want to uh, just ask you a few questions, and uh, hopefully we'll have some callers that will also chime in. But I think one of the confusing things that happened, uh, and this was probably prior to President Obama being elected, was a lot of confusion about the Voting Rights Act. So could you talk a little bit about the Voting Rights Act what it was, what it means today, uh, and how we ensure that we still maintain uh, the Voting Rights Act uh, here. And the Voting Rights Act is really, in the estimation of many scholars, the most important uh, piece of civil rights legislation that has ever been enacted. The Voting Rights Act was put into law in 19... 65. Uh, it was signed into law by President Lyndon Baines Johnson. And for folks who are familiar with the acclaimed Academy Award-nominated movie Selma, uh, the Voting Rights Act actually was signed into law not long after the successful Selma march. And many people actually credit that march and the way that that march brought national and, in fact, worldwide attention to the plight of African Americans in the United States who were being oppressed when it came to participating in our electoral system. Many folks uh, credit that march and the civil rights workers who worked on those issues at that time with putting pressure on both Congress and President Lyndon Baines Johnson to actually uh, sign the voting rights law uh, into um, signing the voting rights law so that we would have its protections here in the United States. Here's what it does simply. The Voting Rights Act ensures that states that have a history of discrimination when it comes to voting had to, and I say had, and I'll explain that in a minute, had to previously, if they were going to make any changes to their voting laws in their state, had to have those voting laws pre-cleared with either... uh, by either the Department of Justice or by the highest federal court, uh, appellate court in the District of Columbia. And that not only applied to certain southern states, it also applied to certain jurisdictions in the north, uh, places like some jurisdictions in the state of New York, uh, where they had a history of discrimination. And that was the law from 1965 until 2013, and that ensured that these states Uh, would not be able to put laws in effect that would harm African-American and other minority voters without it first being okayed by DOJ or the highest federal court in the District of Columbia. In 2013, the case Shelby County versus Holder changed all of that. Under that case, the Supreme Court gutted that preclearance section of the Voting Rights Act. So on June 25, 2013, the Supreme Court ruled that those jurisdictions that had previously been covered by the Voting Rights Act, 
those southern states, those jurisdictions that I mentioned that had a history of discrimination, they no longer had to seek permission from the Department of Justice or from the highest uh, uh, appellate court in the District of Columbia before making changes to their voting laws. And that changed everything. So these issues that we have currently with voter suppression, um, so many of these things are happening because states no longer have to get this permission. That means that voters don't necessarily know about negative changes to voting laws until they've happened. The Voting Rights Act used to ensure that we were able to stop bad things from happening before they actually happened. Now we don't have that protection. That is something that is very alarming, very concerning to all of us, and is something that we are continually continually fighting against ever since 2013 when the Supreme Court made that decision. Thank you so much for that explanation. So, as as you just mentioned, um, the Voter Rights Act basically protected us and allowed us to have the information ahead of time so that advocacy groups like, your, like yours, Brennan Center for Justice and others, could better inform voters about different changes in the laws that were coming up based on their particular jurisdictions. Um, and so this provision just kind of um, nipped all of that in the bud. And so what I want us to talk about a little bit is some of these states have, in recent years, uh, tried to roll back or change districting and districting and um, ways in which people voted, days in which people voted, uh, to ensure that the vote, particularly of those of Black and Brown people, poor people, had less access to uh, voting booths, polls. Um, less access in terms of days because we know that when uh, President Obama was elected, there were busloads of people because I was working at a poll, <laughs> at a polling place that day, and there were vans of people who were bringing people from church. From I think they might have been picking people up <laughs> just <laughs> on the corner saying, "Come on, you have got to come and vote." Um, and so I think that having President Obama. Um, being elected after his election, and there was actually an article in the Slatist that said after Obama's 2008 win, Indiana GOP added early voting in white suburbs and cut it in Indianapolis, mm -hmm. which we know is where a lot of black and brown people live. And so could you talk a little bit about the various states that tried to enact all of these laws or had, in fact, enacted laws to restrict voting, and uh, the Supreme Court in those particular states came in and said, no, you can't, you can't do this. This is unconstitutional. Uh, so you could, could you talk a little bit about that and where we are now? Because we know that there has been talk of them uh, the GOPs continue disenfranchise voters around the country. Sure. And, and let me do this, Ange, uh, because there was a whole lot packed in that question of yours. And I want to try to separate it. <laughs> I, I want to try to separate a, a little bit for our listeners. Um, and I'm going to separate it into three categories. One, the issue of voting restrictions. Number two, the issue of redistricting. And number three, the issue of litigation, okay? Because even though okay. all of those things are inextricably linked, we have to think about them and talk about them separately in order to understand how they all work together. So first, starting with um, the issue of voter suppression. After the 2010 election cycle, lawmakers in states across the country began introducing hundreds 
of harsh legislative measures that would have the result of making it harder for people to vote. These legislative measures range from uh, cutting back to early voting, like you mentioned. It, it dealt with changing registration requirements. For instance, some states had what we know as same-day voter registration, such that a voter, even if they didn't meet an earlier deadline, they could show up at the polls on vote on election day, they could register to vote, and vote that same day. Uh, some states tried to cut back on that. Some states introduced what we know as strict photo ID requirements to ensure that voters had to show a photo identification card, one that, one that was um, accepted by the state, because just because you've got some ID in your wallet that has your picture on it doesn't mean it's acceptable to every state when it comes to um, voter photo ID. So some of those kinds of changes, we call all those changes categorically voter suppression efforts. This had a huge impact on our election system. Overall, 20 states at this point, now we're in 2017, so this has been going on since at least 2010, and the Brennan Center did a report on this in 2011. I like to say we sounded the alarm bell, and this report looked at every state in 2011 that was introducing any kind of suppressive legislation that would have the effect of making it harder for someone to either register to vote or indeed vote in an election. Coming forward to 2017, we still at this point have 20 states that have new restrictions that, have, that are in effect and that have been in effect since 2010. At least 10 of those states have more restrictive voter ID laws in place than they ever had before. Seven have laws in place that make it harder for citizens to register. Pardon me. Six have cut back on early voting days and early voting hours. And three states have made it harder to restore voting rights for people with past criminal convictions. Again, all of those efforts together are considered voter suppression. Now, we were successful, and when I say we, I don't just mean us at the Brennan Center. I mean all of the progressive voting advocacy community was very successful in fighting back against these states that were trying to implement these suppressive laws. There were lots of lawsuits that were filed since 2010, and in many instances we were successful. But, again, because we don't have the protection of the Voting Rights Act, there are still states that are trying to pull funny business, as I like to say, and still attempting to introduce these suppressive laws. And I'm going to stop there, Angela, Angie, because I know that's a mouthful, and I want to see if you have any follow-up questions to that, and then I'll go on to the other two buckets of, of um, litigation and redistricting. Sure. Thank you so much. And what we're going to do is if you are uh, interested in asking a question, you can, of course, uh, just hit the one on your keypad, and we will know that you want to ask a question if you're on the line now. If you're listening online and you would like to ask a question, just uh, dial 619-924-0980, 619-924-0980, and we will make sure to uh, get you queued in. So I think we have a question. Um, do we have a question? Mm -hmm. Yes, we have a question. Uh, the first With um, area code 240-534, you are on the air now. Calling Hi. Home. Hello. Hi, Sabrina. Hi, <laughs> Hi yes, it's Sabrina. <laughs> okay, Hi, Sabrina. here's my question. I'm calling from Bethesda. <laughs> okay, my question is... Your question? Yeah, my question is, um, 
Nicole started to say, well, she was saying that a lot of this uh, suppression started in 2011. So that's, you know, six years ago. And what I wanted to know was what we're hearing now, this sort of dog whistle message that we're hearing now, is that this is all a big thing to fight um, voter fraud. And so in all of the things that I have heard and all of the different suppression uh, tactics, I'm not hearing anything that's going to really, do you think, stop fraud. I mean, has anyone, did that, was that even brought up in 2011 that that was the reason or was it really just a knee-jerk reaction to Obama winning the election? Sabrina, hi. That is a great question. One of the things, and, and look, we're, we're just going to be real here. We did not see this onslaught of voter suppression laws being introduced in any state until the nation elected its first African-American president, plain and simple. Mm-hmm. The other thing that we need to note is the majority of states, if not all of them, where these suppressive laws were being in, or, or pieces of legislation were being introduced were states in which either the governor's office or the state legislature were controlled by the Republican Party. So it's very clear that this was an effort by members of the Republican Party to make it harder for those voters who they believed were more inclined to vote for a Democrat, to make it harder for those voters to vote because they thought that was having a negative impact on their party. Pure mm-hmm. and simple. And yes, this issue of voter fraud, even though the, 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 the subject of voter fraud has, has been around for quite some time, you know, the Brennan Center did a report on, 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 on voter fraud that we called The Truth About Voter Fraud that we did several years ago. Um, and uh, even at that time, it was not a big issue. But yes, to your point, many of these Republican legislatures, once folks started saying, we see what you're doing, we think you're trying to make it harder for black, brown, poor people, elderly people who tend to vote Democrat, we think you're trying to make it harder for them to vote and that this is a political action, a politically motivated action, that's when, as they were trying to come up with reasons to legitimize their behavior, they started saying, oh, well, this is, this is about voter fraud. But the thing yeah. about that is this. Some of the things that they were trying to introduce, like strict photo ID, that cannot possibly be a mechanism to really deal with the kind of voter fraud that many of them were saying existed. Um, The instances of voter fraud are de minimis. Everybody needs to to know that. And this is not just the Brennan Center saying this. The New York Times has done reports on this. Other academics across the country have done reports on this. Mostly what has happened is that there are errors by elections officials or sometimes voters simply aren't understanding their rights and responsibilities in terms of where they have to vote and how they have to register. That's usually what many elections are saying uh, is voter fraud, but that's not really fraud. That's that's more of an administrative error. Yeah. So yes. Yeah, so this so voter this issue compliance. of voter fraud is is really a non is really a non issue, but it certainly has been an excuse yeah. used to defend um, you know the 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 intrusion of these voter suppression laws. Okay, that's what I thought. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> thanks for keep thanks for keeping it real, Nicole, because it it really I mean. Those of us who really are just, you know, the average everyday citizen, we see this and it's just like, okay, that seems kind of funky because I know that I can easily just go and vote. And I'm not trying to vote more than once, you know, and there are mechanisms in place. As I said um, in the beginning, that there, I actually 
was a, a poll worker at, at the polling booth at the library. And, I mean, we had very strict guidelines in terms of how we were letting people in, letting people vote, and, you know, making sure that we weren't, we weren't helping people. You know, the people were very clear with the instructions, even people that came in that didn't speak the language. And so um, for them to come and say now there's millions of people that voted illegally is just – it's just asinine to me that how did yes, millions of people, because yes. if millions of people did it, if millions of people voted illegally, I think we would have had a bit of better, different election result, I think. <laughs> she said better. Better. <laughs> and, 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 you know, you made, it, you, made, you, you, made, you made an interesting point also when you said, um, you know, that, um, you know, I, I, you didn't see people going around trying to pretend they were somebody else and voting on their behalf. The thing that the thing that I always like to remind people of is this: you can go to jail for committing voter fraud, for committing in-person voter fraud. And I don't know about you guys, but you know, I don't know about people who are saying I'm going to risk my family, my home, my livelihood just so that I can go to a poll on election day and say that I'm, Judy, that I'm Judy Smith next door when I'm really, um, you know, Ava Watson. I, I, I just don't know people who are willing to risk all of that just to cast a vote as someone, just cast a ballot as someone else. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know of anyone who's willing to do that. I mean, I don't really know that many people who are willing to stand online the day after Christmas in the cold and get a television. So to stand on a long <laughs> to stand on a long line um, to vote, just you know, where I mean, we know that voting is down in this country. We know that people there are a lot of people who don't exercise their right to vote, and that drives me crazy too. And that's a whole nother other other topic people try to ensure that you have the right to vote and so for you to have the ability the capability to vote uh is is just crazy to me that you actually don't exercise that so why don't we um we move on to the other two parts of my first very long question uh, and I'll let, you, I'll let you answer that and again anyone online that wants to ask a question please just press one on your keypad so go ahead i'm turning it back over to you nicole Okay, thanks. Okay, so we've talked about voter suppression. Let's talk about redistricting very briefly. Redistricting is the mechanism that is used by states to draw legislative and congressional lines that we call districts. And everybody knows this. Everybody knows when they go to vote. You'll see most, many of us don't know the number for the district that we live in, but you see it on your voter registration card or you see it when you go to your polling place that this is district number whatever. So those district lines are drawn by state legislatures, and they are based on census data. So that means every, every 10 years, every decade when there is a census, we're going to be also redrawing uh, the district lines, and that whole process is called redistricting. Now, here's something that people really need to understand, and this is why voting is so important, and it's not just important when it comes to electing the president. It is important whether you are electing the dog catcher, the school board president, and everything in between, but particularly when it comes to redistricting. Who is in the state legislature – 
whether it's run by Republic, whether the majority is Republicans or Democrats, determines then who gets to oversee redistricting. Whether there's a Democrat, mm-hmm. Independent, or Republican in the governor's office for every state, that determines who's going to oversee redistricting. And guess what? The party in control is going to more than likely attempt to draw district lines that are going to favor their party. And right now, there's going to be a major case coming up before the Supreme Court during this term when it starts. This term coming up is going to be the 2017-2018 term. It's going to be a major redistricting case coming up. And we see this kind of litigation that arises again every time we are getting close to a census. Um, There are Mm -hmm. cases, and there are history of cases, that really talk about how redistricting has to work. Um, There are cases that say, look, you can't base legislative districting based on race. You can't draw lines uh, to make it harder for one race of people to elect candidates of their choice versus another. Um, This this litany of cases is is what we know as the Shaw versus Reno cases um, from the mid-'90s. But what's going to be before the Supreme Court now is whether you can draw district uh, lines based on partisanship. Um, There are folks who are saying, look, it is a problem if you are drawing lines to benefit one party versus another. So folks need to understand the importance of that and understand when you don't go to the polls to elect your governor, when you don't go to the polls to elect your state legislators, you are making a decision about district lines and about which party gets to control how those lines are drawn. Amen. And why we should have oh. our butts at each election. <laughs> each election, every, every election, election is important. Every election, every election is important. It's not just when there's a president, presidential election. Every local election is important. Every state election is, is very important. Um, and, again, people die to ensure that we have this right. So, And there are people who are being suppressed who want to vote who want to exercise their right, who can't. So it's up to us, who can, to actually do it. So, um, Nicole, there was a a third point that you were going to make. So you talked about redistricting, and you talked about voter suppression, based on my my full question. So was there a a third (laughs) point that (laughs) that you wanted to address? Yes, it's litigation. But before I get to litigation, quickly, just to close out the redistricting discussion, Folks need to understand that not only is voting in every election and voting at every level important because of redistricting, it's also important because folks need to understand the day-to-day issues that impact our lives are most likely to be local issues. Certainly what the President of the United States does impacts our lives. But think about the things people complain about on a daily basis. I am dealing with too many red light cameras in the city in which I live. The parking fees for the meters are too high in the city where I live. The taxes are too high. Those are decisions that are made by your local elected officials. So the things that you are most concerned about are more than likely being governed by your local elected. But when you choose to skip out on elections that are allowing you to determine who your governor is, who your county council member is, who your school district member is, you then are making a decision about all of those issues that really and truly impact your life on a daily basis. So I just just really felt the need to, to underscore that. 
So litigation. Litigation. Folks need to understand that all, all of these things that I just talked about, the voter suppression, the redistricting, and you heard me say this a minute ago when we talked about the redistricting, litigation is involved in all of these areas. Let's talk about voter suppression very quickly. Several states that have been accused of trying to implement suppressive laws have been challenged in the courts. And I'll give you two quick examples. The, the great state of Texas, and I'm sorry for whomever's listening that's from Texas. My best friend lives there, but I tell her, other than visiting her, I don't go to Texas. Uh, too many issues, this being one among them. Texas is a state that on the day the Supreme Court ruled in the Shelby County decision on June 25, 2013, the Attorney General of Texas came out within hours of the Supreme Court rendering its decision and said, oh, great, now we can put our new voting, uh, vote, you know, voting laws in place. And these laws were restrictive laws dealing with photo ID and dealing with some other suppressive measures. And ever since then, Advocates have been in court with the state of Texas, despite the fact that lower courts, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, said on record, these laws are clearly meant to discriminate against African Americans and Hispanics, and they have the effect of doing nothing more than prohibiting these groups from voting. And the courts, these lower courts have said, these are discriminatory actions by the state of Texas, but Texas keeps coming back. They seem to be like the Energizer Bunny. They don't run out, they don't run out of steam. Um, Texas is continuing to fight the Brennan Center, the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law, the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund, are, uh, the ACLU are among the many groups that are continuing to fight against these suppressive laws. And then another quick example is in Ohio. The issue of voter purging, and I don't know if people know what voter purging is. When it comes close to an election season, elections officials in every state can clean up their voter rolls. And by cleaning up the voter rolls, that means they're supposed to go through and they're supposed to look and see, um, are some of the people that are on our rolls, have, have some of those people now passed away, and should they be taken off our rolls? Are there some people who are still on our rolls who perhaps have moved to a new jurisdiction and therefore should not be on these rolls? But they're supposed to do that kind of house cleaning. And when they do that kind of house cleaning and they remove names from the rolls, that process is called voter purging. But the problem with voter purging is there are rules and regulations that govern it, such, such as there are rules that say if you're going to purge, you, can't, you can only purge up to a certain date um, before the election because they don't want, the government doesn't want voters who really should be on, on the rolls to be accidentally purged. But we have states that in many instances have been ignoring those rules and have been coming up with rationales for why they are purging rules the way they are uh, and basically trying to defend their actions. And what we found in Ohio is that oftentimes the numbers of people who have been purged from their roles, again, have been the same groups of people who are negatively impacted by the voter suppression effort, black people, brown people, the elderly, the young. And so Ohio, for instance, has been challenged in court with respect to voter purging. So folks need to also understand this, that when these efforts are underway by states, 
not only do we have to watch and see what's going on in the legislation in the in the legislative bodies in the states, we also have to then figure out how do we challenge these people when they do these things. And that's when the lawyers step in and we do litigation. And that's why I said from the outside, Angela, these are three different buckets, but folks need to understand how the dots are connected and how all of these things are inextricably linked. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. Um, it's the same thing that we do on the state level when we're working with, with the legislation. You know, you get you push from all angles. You push the legislative angle, you push the litigation angle, because what you're trying to do is make them sit up and take notice that we're coming for you. We're not going to just sit back and just let you do what you want to do. Too many people have fought long and hard for the rights that we have secured, and we're just not going to sit back and, and just let you just roll over all of this. Um, exactly. and, and it is a fight, and it's, 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 a, it's a tiring fight. Uh, so you on the front lines and many of these other organizations on the front lines with voting, um, I highly commend you because it is, it is definitely always a fight because it's like guacamole. You're trying to, okay, you're in <laughs> North Carolina. Okay, you got the Supreme Court saying, okay, it's, it's unconstitutional, and then you got to go to Texas, and then, oh, no, they're trying to do something in Ohio. You know, and it is just, it is just unnerving, and it is you know this constant barrage on our right as as citizens of this country that we are faced with these things constantly all the time and we're constantly fighting. So one of the things I want to talk about Nicole thank you for breaking down my long question into three parts <laughs> but one I want to talk about is we unfortunately have a uh person in the White House number 45 who seems to think, okay, not only were there millions of people who voted illegally uh, in the last election that he won, uh, it's, it's hard to say that, that he won, um, but that now he has created this voter fraud commission. Mm-hmm. And this voter fraud commission has, in their first act, I think the first notice to all of the states that they wanted all of this data regarding people who were voting in, in who has ever done that uh, and and for someone to talk about states rights so much states rights means the states run their elections and so could you talk a little bit about this voter fraud commission uh, the fact that there have been so many states, and I'm so thankful I have moved to Delaware where that was one of the states that they said they're not giving them any information, even though I'm not on their voter rolls yet, I will get there. Um, what, you know, can you talk a little bit about the Voter Fraud Commission, and do you think it's going to have any legs? Sure. And, Angela, let me remind you uh, that when you get on uh, the voting rolls in Delaware, make sure you get off the rolls where you last lived. Uh, Let anyone anyone accuse you of trying to circumvent the system. I just want to make sure. Not me. But, you know, I have have attorneys in speed dial if need be, but I will make sure that I am off of the rolls in my former state, and I will get on the road in my existing state. Thank you for that tip. Of course, of course. Um, now, your question really takes us back to our caller Sabrina's question um, about voter fraud. Uh, again, folks were just shocked. And when I say folks, I'm talking about advocates on both sides of the aisle were shocked when the winner of the last presidential election asserted that there were up to 3 million voters that had voted illegally, hence 
uh, noting that we had voter fraud and that he was going to investigate this. Uh, it, it is rare for someone who wins an election to allege that there was fraud of any kind. <laughs> oftentimes, oftentimes you'll hear the loser allege that there was doings, but you rarely hear that from the winner. But anyway, so um, number 45, as you mentioned, Ange, number 45 asserted that we had um, widespread voter fraud in this election and that he wanted to get to the bottom of it to ensure the integrity of our election system. Now, there have been experts from all walks who have come forward and have said, we don't see this voter fraud that number 45 is talking about. We see no evidence that there was widespread voter fraud in the 2016 election. Therefore, we're not sure what this commission is going to be studying. So again, keeping it real, as I know we want to do on this show, many of us believe that this commission is nothing but pretextual as a way to try and, again, get at some of these efforts to suppress the vote. There are many who feel like this commission will come out with recommendations to do things like introduce legislation that would have the effect of suppressing the vote, again, for the black, the brown, the poor, the elderly, the students. That's what many of us feel this commission is really about. If you also look at the makeup of the commission, you know, most presidential commissions are supposed to be bipartisan. They are supposed to have people, you know, who can argue every side, who don't necessarily agree, but who can intellectually come together and have academic discussions about an issue. This commission is peppered with people, many of whom have been behind some of these voter suppression efforts. Case in point, his co-chair, uh, we all know Vice President Pence is one of the co-chairs. The other co-chair is Chris Kobach, who is the Secretary of State in Indiana, who has been brought into court on numerous occasions by organizations like the Brennan Center because we believe that in his role as Secretary of State, he was attempting to suppress the vote of many voters. So he, so number 45 was already starting off on the wrong foot by putting together a commission to study an issue that myriad experts have said doesn't exist and then putting in place as the co-chair one of the nation's biggest culprits who have been guilty of trying to introduce suppressive voter laws across the country. So to get to your, your main question, will this result in something? Many of us think this will simply result in a waste of time, effort, and money as a way to circumvent looking at the real problem in the United States, which is foreign interference in our elections. We know, and we've seen the evidence that's come from the government, that Russia interfered in our 2016 elections. If, the, if number 45 really is committed to looking at fraud and making our election systems more ethical, he should be putting all of his energies into figuring out how do we stop Putin and all of his colleagues from interfering in our elections? How do we make our election system safer so that this kind of thing doesn't happen again? That's where the attention really needs to be focused. Well, we kind of know why the focus isn't there um, <laughs> on Putin. Uh, we won't get into that because, again, that is another show. Um, but I, I think that you bring up a good point when you talk about who's actually on this, because uh, we know uh, VP Pence is no angel, and um, and the Secretary of State there from Indiana, former Secretary of Indiana, um, also you know no no angel. And as you say, most of these commissions have been bipartisan, that have put up 
previously. So maybe this will be another one uh, that will be disbanded soon. Hopefully, maybe they'll drop off. You see? <laughs> you know, <laughs> that here's here's here, that would be nice. But here's why I don't think that will happen. Because again, as I mentioned, this commission, in terms of its makeup, is not really bipartisan. Um, many mm-hmm. of the people who number 45 have, has appointed to this commission are people who really believe, as he does, that voter fraud exists. Um, when we look at some of the other commissions recently, his business roundtable commissions that disbanded within the last day or two, those were mm-hmm. commissions made up of, of business leaders from all walks um, and who were able to come together and voice their disagreement and decide that they didn't think that the commission needed to continue to exist. But when you pepper a commission with people who basically are your supporters, the likelihood of them coming together and saying, we're questioning the integrity of this commission and we're going to disband, that's highly unlikely. Yeah. Yeah. So, Nicole, I have a follow-up question for you, and it's my day that Common Cause when when President Obama was in the office and that there were so many good government groups who were engaged with him about trying to uplift democracy and trying to have fairness. So I have a twofold question. Number one, um, I think I know the answer to, which is, have have any of you heard from this administration in terms of providing your expertise to the conversation? What have you all thought about doing in terms of injecting or trying to um, offer that expertise? Trina, that is a great question, and you are right. The previous administration, they had an amazing open-door policy. They brought in people from all walks, even people who didn't necessarily agree with the, the with the Obama administration. They brought folks in, and they brought them around the table to have concrete um, academic discussions about what could be done about a particular issue. I will say this. Um, To my knowledge, I haven't been contacted, and I don't know of any of my colleagues, not only within the Brennan Center, but within many other progressive organizations who've been contacted to come in and sit down with this White House to talk about voting issues or any other issues of that matter. I will also tell you that I know from my interactions with some of my Republican friends that even they are having a difficult time getting into this White House that hmm. they have hard times getting meetings or connecting to the the right decision maker about particular issues. So, you know, again, being honest, if my Republican friends can't get in the door, uh, I'm not holding my breath in anticipation of waiting for my official White House invitation. Just it's, it's you know it's just not something that I'm counting on, uh, and I don't I don't see that happening. Now, to your second question. Um, in terms of what outreach have, have have folks in the progressive community made, there's been lots of outreach, and you see it. it most uh, most of it is public. You have seen letters go to Attorney General Sessions, for instance, from the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights, the nation's largest mm-hmm. civil rights umbrella organization um, that makes up uh, 
the nation's largest coalition of civil rights groups. Um, they've sent letters to the, to Attorney General Sessions about, um, you know, asking how is this DOJ going to um, respond uh, with respect to some of these voting issues? You know, what what's DOJ's position going to be with respect to some of the voting litigation that's been ongoing? Uh, so. And treaties have been made to try to work with and talk with this administration. Um, but I think most of those entreaties have fallen on deaf ears. Um, you know, I myself um, have found that right now I'm having some more success trying to work with Republican colleagues who are outside of the White House but who have more knowledge about this White House than probably I do, that's where I'm finding the most success. And certainly I'm continuing to work with Republicans on the Hill who have been open to, to working with the progressive community on a variety of issues, not just on voting, um, cause, because we actually haven't had a whole lot of bipartisan support um, when it comes to the voting issues, but on other issues like criminal justice, there has been some, and that is continuing. But in terms of this White House and the people who are actually in the Oval Office, who are part of the executive um, team uh, working for number 45, no. Um, we've, we've just not been in contact with those people, and you know, nor have we seen um, any interest in, in working with groups like the mm-hmm. Brennan Center or others. Yep, all boys club. Yeah, definitely all, all boys club. Yep. So, Nicole, I have another question for you. I'm going to see if there's anyone on the on the line that wants to ask a question, if you just hit one on your keypad. Uh, and if you also want to ask a question and you're listening online, you can dial 619-924-0980. Again, 619-924-0980. So if you want to ask a question, just hit one on your keypad and we will, um, we will patch you in. So... The question that I have for you is, oh, we have a question? Yep. Okay. Caller with 617, area code 290. Hello. What's your name and where are you calling from? Hi, it's Sabrina again, and now I'm calling from the cell phone. Oh, okay. (laughs) Hey, Sabrina. (laughs) Hey, I'm just all around town. Still in Bethesda. um, I'm not... I don't want to get off topic, but I just wanted to come back to one thing. I know um, Nicole mentioned that one of the important things that we had to look at was the 2020 census, and we just realized that the person who was the director of the census is retiring and that that position is now open, and it's also susceptible to funding levels. And I was wondering if anybody was keeping an eye on what's happening with the funding for the census of 2020 and whether... Trump is going to be the person that is allowed to appoint the new head of the census. Sabrina, thank you for that question. I will tell you there are many organizations, many of the same organizations who work on voting rights, like the Brennan Center, who are watching what is going on with the census. And I will tell you, particularly if folks are interested, some of our ally brother and sister organizations who represent um, individuals um, who speak other languages, um, organizations that represent the interests of the Hispanic community, many of those organizations are doing the yeoman's work on tracking what's going on with respect to the census. Um, so organizations like the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Educational Fund, um, mm-hmm. Asian, Asian Americans Advancing Justice, um, also okay. the organization DEMOS is, is, tracking that, is tracking that. So, yes, that is going to be a very, very key 
key appointment. Um, and yes, the dollars that go to the Census Bureau um, are part of the budgets that both the President and Congress work on separately, but that obviously they have to um, they have to come to some agreement on in terms of you know spending allocations. Um, so I would urge folks who are interested in this issue and who are focusing on the 2020 census to, one, um, go to census.gov because there's going to be updates there about who's going to be running the census and about budgeting, but also to look specifically at some of those organizations that I mentioned earlier at their websites. Now, the Brennan Center... Um, you know, even though we work on voting, the census is not an issue that we work on as a priority, and that's only because none of us can do everything, um, and that's simply not one of the things um, that that we focus on primarily. But again, MALDEF, Asian Americans Advancing Justice. Um, the organization formerly known as National Council of La Raza, those organizations are ones that I would urge people to to go to their websites and follow the work that they're doing around the census. Okay, thank you, Nicole. Welcome. Good questions. Good questions, Amrina. <laughs> Talking about the census. Um, so, Nicole, the question that I had um, is, you know, we talked a lot about what uh, people did to get to this point, how many people fought long and hard to ensure that we had the right to vote, um, how many people died, and as you mentioned in the beginning, Selma. I mean, the scenes of people being beat just for going to try to vote and exercise mm-hmm. their right. I mean, it's really telling of, of what the struggle was. And the struggle wasn't just for, you know, for black people, it was for brown people, Asian people, women. You know, there's been the struggle all along. Um, and I'm just curious to hear your opinions as to if you could change anything about the way the system is run now, uh, in terms of, of our democracy and our voting rights, what would you do? If you had the opportunity to sit, to chair the voter commission, what would you do? <laughs> now, and I would not chair that commission. Okay, let's just be I, clear. I, know, about that. I, know. <laughs> I would not be. I would not ever chair such a commission uh, because as soon as I would get the call asking me to do so, I would say voter fraud doesn't exist. Um, so case closed. Talk to me about something else. So I, you know, there would be nowhere to go from there. But you know, but if I had a magic wand and I could make changes to our democracy, there are a couple things that I would do. Number one, I would make it so that anybody in the United States who was a citizen could easily register to vote. And I would want the ding, onus ding, ding. to be on the I would want the onus to be on the states and not on the voter. You know, the way our system exists, in many ways it's antiquated. And when you think about it, you know, we're supposed to be the world's most advanced democracy, but we still have some very antiquated mechanisms in place when it comes to our electoral system. For instance, when you like we're gonna use you as an example, Ange, you just moved Thank to the you. state of Delaware. You now have to take it upon yourself to find out where is my local elections assistance office, what do I have to do to register to vote, 
can I register when I go to update my, my driver's license by just going to MVA or DMV or whatever acronym they use in the state of Delaware? Can I do it that way? Because we have something called the Motor Voter Law in the United States, again, one of the other civil rights um, voting pieces of legislation that help to protect us, which says that when you go to update your driver's license or conduct any kind of business at a DMV, they must ask you, do you want to register to vote? Or, or is there some other mechanism that you have to follow in Delaware? That puts the onus on you, as opposed to you getting something in the mail or on your email from your state that says, we see based on other state agency records that you've just moved to the state of Delaware, and we want to make sure that you're registered to vote. And, here, and we're going to make that possible for you to do that right here and now. That's what kind of system we should have in our democracy. There are mm-hmm. mechanisms that organizations like the Brennan Center are trying to support, such as automatic voter registration. Um, we, we use the acronym AVR to talk about it. Under AVR, a state would ensure that once you are registered to vote, your voter registration follows you no matter where you live in that state. So even if, Angela, um, say, for instance, you are in Wilmington, but you want to move to Dover, you won't have to then figure out when you move, how do I get re-registered in my new district? It will follow you because the state databases will be talking to one another. That's how easy it should be for every voter. People should not have to try to recreate the wheel because they move to a new city, because they move to a new state, because they get married and change their name and have to update these records. We have to stop this silliness. It does nothing but adds to the administrative overload that every state has to deal with, and it makes it harder for people to register and then finally engage in our election system. That's number one. Number two, I would make same-day registration possible all over the country. Right now it's only available in certain jurisdictions. I would make it possible everywhere because, again, our democracy is about expanding opportunities, not about decreasing them. And so we should have rules and regulations in place that make it easier for people to register and then cast their ballot, not harder. Same-day registration does that. I can't tell you, every time there's an election, you know, I'm one of those lawyers who works um, on the election protection hotline, and we get calls from voters. It never fails. Every election season, we get calls from voters who say, um, I didn't register to vote, but I want to vote. Can I go and register and vote on the same day? And I have to tell so many of them, no, I'm so sorry. You can't, unless you happen to live in one of those jurisdictions. That's ridiculous. Why are we making it this hard for people to engage in our electoral yep. process? That's, that, that's the second thing that I would change. And the third thing that I would change is I would make sure that we put civic education back in our school systems. Hello. And yes. that is because yes. one of the reasons why we have these difficulties and why we have really the biggest problem in the United States, truth be told, and I want everybody to know this, as ugly as voter suppression is, as ugly as some of this redistricting, legislate, redistricting litigation is, our biggest problem in the United States is not those things. Our biggest problem is that we don't have enough people that actually vote. One of the reasons that is is because people are not focused on voting as being important. Part of that is because we no longer teach civics in our schools. If you want people to be engaged in the democracy, if you want them to understand and appreciate why it's important, you've got to start teaching it from early on. It's just like your ABCs and your one, two, threes. You ingrain it 
from an early age, and then guess what? People hold on to it. It sticks to them. So I would put civics education back in every school system so that our young people value and understand the importance of our democracy from day one. Wow, thank you're you. You're here. Awesome. Very much. I mean, awesome. civic education, definitely, you know, learning the I'm just a bill, I'm only a bill sitting here That's on Capitol right. Hill and House Rock. Yep. That's right. We yep. have to go back to the basics, and I think someone even um, – Yes, just yesterday, the day before, I said that even number 45 needs to get back to just the basics. Yeah, you know what? Get him some, some DVDs or something. <laughs> he needs some DVDs. Somebody needs to sit down with him. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I now, see, I just, have to, I just have to remind people that I work for a nonpartisan organization. I know. So I will I let know. you all engage in the hyperbole about 45. <laughs> I'm just going to listen. I'm just going to listen. That is that is that is the wisest thing to do here on this show. Just listen. We just can't necessarily can't necessarily interject. We get together because we like to have the peanut gallery going. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you, thank you for that. Wand, Mr. Cole. So I just want to you. Um, do you have any final thoughts or comments? Because we are nearing the end of our show, and I just want to make sure that you got in everything that you needed to get in because this was a wealth of information, mm-hmm. a wealth of information. We're going to send this out, make sure people listen to it, uh, and people understand that this is this is real. Uh, and we're talking about the census that Sabrina brought up. You know, we're talking about redistricting. We're talking about the litigation. We're talking about uh, voter purging. I mean, there's a lot of meat in this particular conversation we're having, and people need to understand that this is serious business. This is why it is so important for you to get out there and exercise your your right to vote because it is something you know. In some instances, it's a matter of life and death. We are we are being faced with a variety of barrages coming at us all at once. So I just want to leave you with the last word that you want to interject to our audience. Ange, thank you so much. And and before I I offer some parting words, let me just say again how much I appreciate the invitation to be on the show and to be engaged in this conversation that, as you say, is so very important um, and is one that people need to be engaged in. And that's really part of my, part of my, my parting thoughts, is that, number one, folks need to make sure they are not asleep at the wheel. This is not a moment to say, somebody else got this. Somebody else is taking care of this. I don't have to. No, you have to take care of it. You have to come out on Election Day. You have to know about suppressive legislation that's being introduced in your jurisdiction. It's not for your neighbor. It's not for your mother, your father, your sister. It's for you. You have an obligation as an American who's part of this democracy to know what's going on, to be educated about it, and to do something about it. If things are happening that you don't like, it's up to you. You know, one of the things we heard post-election is so many people said, well, I didn't vote because I thought candidate A was going to win. All the polls said Mm. candidate A was going to win, so I didn't come out. No, you can't sit idly by and sit on your petard 
anymore. You can't wait for other people to do the work that you individually have a right and an obligation to do as a member and a part of this democracy. That's number one. And number two, People need to know that history is being made every day. When we talk about voting, this is not just about Congressman John Lewis having his brains beat out by the state troopers in Alabama, in Birmingham on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. I'm sorry, in Selma on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. This is not just about Cheney, Schwerner, and Goodman who lost their lives during Freedom Summer in Mississippi when they tried to register people to vote. This is about what's going on here and now. Yes, we stand on their shoulders, and they, made, they created the foundation upon which we are living and have to build. But what happened in Charlottesville on Saturday was not something that happened 50 years ago. That happened on Saturday. Folks better wake up mm-hmm. and understand that this is not just something that you read about in a history book in high school. These issues are occurring right now, and if you are a part of this democracy, you have an obligation to get involved and to do, as my hero Congressman John Lewis says, stand up, get in the way, and do something about it. And I'm going to leave it there. Wow. Wow. Thank you. Thank you so much. So, so much. Um, so I want to I want to um, turn it over to Trina in just just a second, but I just want to uh, thank Nicole tremendously on the show for offering your knowledge. Um, and, you know, you, Congressman Lewis walked across that bridge and got beat down. Um, but we are so proud to know someone who walked with him and the, on the anniversary who didn't get beat down. And that's Nicole Hillary walked with was across that Thank bridge. God. Uh, so, yeah, thank God you didn't, there was no beat down. Um, but we are so, so proud of you and so glad that, and honored that you uh, shared your time with us tonight. Our next show is Thursday, September 21st. And it is Sisters on Democracy, a roundtable discussion, because we will be talking about everything that's going on right now, yesterday, two days ago, and I'm sure there will be many more things we can discuss uh, in the next month. And we will also try to bring some of our former guests on to have them talk a little bit about what they talked about in in previous discussions. It will be a roundtable discussion. Everybody can call in and just talk about I'm stressed. I don't know what to do. These people are crazy. <laughs> you know what? I had a really good day. I went to see a really great movie. We're just going to have an open and uh, honest conversation with the sisters next month, Thursday, September 21st. I'm going to yes. close us out. Yes. And, again, thank you, Nicole. We we knew when we when we decided to do this topic that we really, 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 there are other people, there are plenty of other people in the space, but especially can considering the special place that you hold for us and your gravitas clearly about the topic. We were so glad that you took the time tonight. And I also just want to um, invite everyone to stay tuned to the Power Network. We just decided uh, the Power Network is a part of the Life Coach Radio Network and the Revolutionary Sisters of the Diaspora is part of the Power Network. We decided to spin off a whole new network Power is an acronym that stands for peace, opportunity, no, it doesn't, peace, one love, (laughs) 
wisdom, <laughs> empowerment, and revolution. Because we, y'all, as we were going into this year, we realized that the stakes are really high and that we needed to have a space for people to come, in, come together and own the platform and own the discussion and the narrative. And so we at the podcast decided that we want to host a special dialogue about our post-Charlottesville, what's going on. We've done this several times in the past when big um, lightning rod issues have come up, and we are in the process of figuring out when we're going to have that. It'll be sometime in 10 days. So just check out Power Network on Blog Talk Radio. Of course, um, once we get a date out, we will be pushing that information out. And we hope here at Revolutionary Sisters of the Diaspora, because we are all part of the same family, we'll jump in and join that discussion as well. So with with that, we're going to sign off, and we're going to wish you a good night. Be safe. Be safe. Keep the fight. And stay woke. Stay woke. Good night, everybody. Bye. Good night, ladies.